I'll ask you to open your scriptures to the prophet Micah, the book of Micah. And this morning, our children are with us because it's the first Sunday of the month. We keep them in here as we observe the Lord's Supper. Only three chapters into Scripture, and we read how the first man and woman chose to sin and thereby plunge all of humanity into sin and under a curse. We need to remember that, that it's, it's not just individual sins, but there is a blanketing curse over all people. But in the same chapter, Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve choose to do that, we are given a message of hope. And in that promise... There is someone of the woman's offspring called He. When He arrives, He will do something. And what He will do is defeat the spiritual serpent. Right there, if you're just reading through the Bible for the first time and you get to Genesis chapter 3, you have to, you sort of, you have a question that comes into your mind, and that is, who is this promised offspring? How long will it take? What will he be like? Well, then in Genesis chapter 12, 15, and 17, God promised to Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him and through his seed. So you have that, that idea of, of seed moving forward through the entire Pentateuch. And that brings another question. Have all the nations been blessed by this individual? And if so, through whom and how? God then promises to Isaiah in chapter 9 that a child would be born, and it's a male child, a son will be given. And you have to ask again, in Isaiah, hundreds of years later, has that child arrived? And if so, how would we know who it is? Isaiah continues with this description. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, It continues, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Which brings another question. If he's going to sit on the throne of David and he's going to be like this, is there really peace in even physical Israel today? Is there peace, true peace, in America today? And if the government is on this individual's shoulder and of his peace, there will be no end. I think as as rightful readers, we have to ask, okay, when will that happen? How and when will that happen? Will we even be able to identify him among so many other self-proclaimed saviors, rescuers, and heroes? How will we know that this is him, lest we be led astray by some other very good teacher? In Micah, we're going to get it. A partial answer to that question. This morning, I want each of us to be able to recognize the identity and mission of the Messiah King. Messiah simply means promised one. And it is a promised king who will crush the head of the spiritual serpent. It is a promised king through Abraham, through whom all the nations will be blessed. When he comes, he will be a ruler and he will be a wonder of a counselor. He will be the mighty God and an eternal Father. And I love this term. He will be the Prince of Peace. Not just 
global peace. But what about the peace in our own relationships? What about the peace within our own heart? The literary structure of or strategy of Micah follows the common pattern of the prophets. This is what happens. He alternates between prophecies of judgment and those are lengthy and then a promise of hope, which is typically shorter. And then you have a second cycle, promises of judgment and then a promise of hope. And then a third cycle, promises of judgment and then a promise of hope. And actually, the teachings of Jesus aren't that much different in this regard, are they? We just saw that recently in the sermon series, the short sermon series on the parables. I mean, all the way through these parables, there is warning and judgment and then what? Hope. Micah's name, and the reason I called my fifth born child after this prophet, means who is like Yahweh. His name is a question. Look towards the end of the book. Look at Micah chapter 7, verse 18. And it's actually going to end the book, the last chapter, by playing, making a play, a word play on Micah's name. In Micah chapter 7, 7, verse 18, it says this, Who is a God like you? Right? That question is supposed to sort of be seared into our minds and into our hearts as we see this ruler, this, this promised deliverer, this king's character and his work and we observe the ways of the Lord God Yahweh we are supposed to ask that question who is a God like you and the, and the question brings forth this answer there is no one like God his character is unrivaled and his actions are amazing both in judgment and in mercy Like we said, Micah's prophecy is arranged in three cycles. We're not going to do an entire sermon through the book of Micah, but I do want you to see these three cycles. Um, they, They each begin with the admonition to hear. And then what Micah does after he says hear, he uses these judicial terms. He's like, hear this. And then he brings them into the courtroom and he uses this judicial language against Samaria and against Jerusalem. Turn back with me to chapter one and look at verse two. This is the first cycle of three. He says, here, you peoples, all of you pay attention. O earth and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be, here's this image of a courtroom, let the Lord God be a witness against you. Just let that set in for a bit. You You have a court date. And there are, there are these crimes being brought against you. And guess who's a witness against you? The all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God of the universe. Do you even stand a chance? So here, here, because this is what's happening. All of you pay attention because this is the judgment that is going to come down upon your sin. And in this first section... It really puts forth this picture that God appears over Israel like a storm and it's supposed to call back images of Mount Sinai. There's thunder, there's smoke, there's lightning and sort of this judgment because they have broken his law. Now Sinai is coming to sort of bear down heavy upon them. God condemns the leaders for their idolatry. 
for becoming wealthy through theft and greed. And he calls out the prophets, God's men. God calls them out because they are willing to proclaim anything you want as long as you can. As long as you can pay for their ministry. That's what Micah is exposing. He's exposing a faulty spiritual leadership and a faulty secular leadership. Yet this isn't the last word. There is hope. And it's great after this first section of judgment, sort of Sinai law judgment. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. Because this is the image you need after sort of this storm hovers over you. He says this. Someday, O Israel... And I think I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. Someday, O Israel, I will gather you. Now, he's already said he's going to scatter them. I'm going to gather you. I will. He says it again. I will gather the remnant who are left. I will bring you together again like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. Yes, your land will again be filled with noisy crowds. But that's not the case after God's judgment strikes. Because they're scattered and they're taken captive. But the land will again be filled with noisy crowds. Your leader will break out and lead you out of exile, out through the gates of the, of the enemy cities, back to your own land. Your king will lead you. The Lord himself will guide you. Now look at the next cycle, the second cycle. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. And I said, here, there's that word that marks these cycles apart. Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? Which is another legal term. You who hate the good and love the evil. In this section, God calls out bribery and injustice. The poor, which goes against the Mosaic law, the poor are losing their land, even when they shouldn't be. And here is what we find out in this section, that God's judgment is going to take the form of an impressive conquering nation. You've seen God do this before in the Old Testament. And now he's calling the Assyrians to come through and push through the gates and destroy not only the northern kingdom, but come down to Jerusalem itself. They will lay siege and they will carry people off. Not really a message of hope in that section. But that isn't the last word. Look at Micah chapter 5. In verse 2, now remember, the captivity hasn't happened yet. The Assyrians haven't began marching yet. Judgment is about to happen. Nobody can stop it. But look at chapter 5, verse 2. Probably uh, one of the two most familiar verses in this small prophet. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me One who is to be ruler in Israel. Now, here's here's part of the identity. How are you going to know that this is the one whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days? The idea is there is an eternal king, God, who is going to be born. And I'm going to give you the exact location so you don't miss it. And, of course, after the Assyrian attack, Israel is conquered and then exiled to Babylon. But God will restore His people back to the land and set up, in a sense, a picture of a new Jerusalem with a messianic king from the line of David. And where will He be born? If He's born in Jerusalem, it's not Him. 
If he's born in Galilee, it's not him. Where must he be born in order for predictive prophecy to bear its weight down on truth? He has to be born in Bethlehem. Of course, the image there, that's where David was born. Now you have this Davidic messianic king coming sort of in David's footsteps now to be the true ruler, not only of Israel, but of the world. Look at the third and final cycle. Chapter 6 and verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. It's the third time He's calling them to attention. Arise, plead your... Notice the third judicial term. Arise and plead your case. And where are you to plead it? Before the mountains. And let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains. Here's this kind of lawsuit term. The indictment of the Lord. And you enduring foundations of the earth... For the Lord has an indictment against His people and He will contend with Israel. And you have more judgment. But you do not have more judgment without what? Without hope. So look at the second most familiar verse. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. This is the indictment that Yahweh is bringing down upon His people. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Now, some of us in here are are very good and precise at justice. We are exacting, but we need to grow in mercy. Some of us in here have an unbiblical view of mercy that needs to be tempered with godly justice. And all of us need to be sure we are growing in our love for kindness marked by humility. Micah writes, in order to bring a lawsuit against his people, he indicts Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom Israel. He indicts Jerusalem, which is the capital of the southern kingdom of Israel. And yet the judgment on this entire nation is not without hope. And what what Micah's framework does is then set up for us The message of God through Micah and its partial fulfillment in Matthew. So I'm going to ask you to turn your scriptures to Matthew chapter 1. Now now recalling that in each cycle, God moves from judgment to hope or to mercy. He moves from judgment because they have broken God's laws and that sin has consequences. And then he moves to hope. Why? Because of God's unchanging covenant. Now, I've already, I've already had you leave Micah, but listen to what Micah 7, verse 20 says. Here, here is Israel pictured as sort of this poverty-stricken, humbled person. And he's crying out to God based on his character. And listen to what he says. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. What are these people in humility and in repentance claiming? They're claiming God's character given through the promises of God. And what they're saying is we have sinned, but you are a covenant-keeping God. And you will show faithfulness. And you will show steadfast love. Do you know, folks, that's where Advent considerations need to begin? Sort of that posture of humility... That posture of dependence, it doesn't begin with lights or trees or food or music. 
It begins as we move into the season remembering why Jesus had to come in the first place. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because the wages of sin is death. This is a true statement and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. Why? To save sinners. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. The book of Micah ends with a powerful illustration of hope. Will God listen and forgive? That's the question. Listen to what, listen to after, after the name has been introduced, listen to what Micah 7, verse 18 says. Who is the God like you? This is what's supposed to stand out. We ask the question. It's a word play on Micah's name. Who is the God like you? Now listen, are you without hope here this morning? Listen to what we're supposed to notice. Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's just not throwing out a simple genealogy here. He is connecting this one who's born a legitimate genealogy to both Jesus' racial and royal pedigree. He is through that line of Abraham, and as such, he can be a blessing to all the nations. He will sit on the throne of David. He has a right to do that because he has this royal pedigree. He's through that line of David, and he fits the description of what Micah and the prophets foretold, that this ruler will come forth and be like this. Now, the birth narrative, beginning in verse 18, Matthew writes that wise men from the east start to move. And it's interesting what Matthew does. You you see these Gentile rulers, nomads, traveling to see a Jewish king. What Matthew is doing is forcing our attention to identify with, sympathize with, the pagan magi rather than with, a, with Herod. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, because this is going to help us recognize God's interest in the Gentile mission. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. That's where they had assumed a king would be born. And they said this, they're asking, they drew some attention, there's probably a large caravan, these are obviously foreigners of wealth, and they asked this question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And folks, that certainly gets the attention of Herod, a usurper of the throne. They said this, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now the other thing... Matthew is doing now is challenging our prejudice against foreign nations. Because here's what's happening. Foreign pagans are following the truth at this point, And the people sitting on Israel's throne are blind. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. 
and all Jerusalem with him. See, they knew the character of Herod. They knew what he was capable of. You'll actually see that as a fulfillment of the prophecy in Jeremiah where he starts to slaughter children just to secure his right to sit on the throne. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He, see, sometimes we look at this scene and, you know, we, we picture a young mother on, on the back of a donkey and they're coming and it's also peaceful and tranquil. You have to realize that the arrival of these kind of men with the power and wealth that they had, it caused an incredible stir within Jerusalem. So much so that Herod assembles all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and he asks this question. Look at verse 4. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. What does the Old Testament say about Messiah? What do the Scriptures say? Where is He going to be born? Because something's happening here and I'm very uncomfortable. I'm angry about it. Look at verse 5. They told Him, in Bethlehem of Judea. And they rightfully now quote what book? Micah chapter 5, verse 2. They told Him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means... See, now it's not Micah 5, 2. It's Matthew 2, 5, and 6. You are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Remember that? That was that hope that connected to the first cycle of judgment. There's going to be incredible judgment, but we'll gather you back. We'll shepherd you. Do you know these prophecies were made about 700 years before Jesus was born? Seven centuries. Between 735 and 710 B.C. Do you know that prophetic, predictive prophecy is sort of an acid test that God is going to do this regardless of whether you believe it or not. And it's going to furnish proof. See, we're not asking somebody to just simply believe in some man's sort of, you know, drawings or dreams. God puts forward verifiable, objective proof so that you can believe. Now, it still takes faith, but He's not leaving faith sort of out in sort of the, the realm of mystery and esotericism. He actually gives you facts and hard proof. Predictive prophecy serves as both a warning and a comfort, like the book of Micah itself. Judgment, but hope. And folks, if God says it, it will happen. And God said in Isaiah 7.14 that a virgin would conceive and bear a son, call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And through the ages, they never saw that as sort of a promise of Messiah until Matthew interprets it that way in Matthew chapter 1, that she will give birth to a son and call his name Jesus. And he actually looks back to Isaiah 7.14 for its fulfillment. Do you know that God's promises will happen whether we desire them or not? Or whether we believe them or not? Or whether we want them to happen right now? Or whether we're ready or not? You know that no one knew the exact timing of Jesus' arrival until certain events began to unfold and a baby's cry pierced the air in Bethlehem. Three themes from Micah and Matthew capture the mission of Jesus. God is a just King who forgives sin 
that he might be glorified for his mercy. I want you to get a quick snapshot in the, in the Gospel of Matthew of God's mercy. Let me just read these to you. Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. Jesus is teaching. Go and learn what this means. Remember we asked the question, will we even be able to identify him? Will we know him when he arrives? Will we be able to identify some character about him? Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus' mission is to call sinners to repentance so that he can show them his mercy. But if you think somehow God is impressed with your righteousness, with your lists, with the things you've done, there's a warning connected to this. He didn't come to call those kind of people because those kind of people see no need for a rescuer or deliverer. But I came to call sinners. Why? Because I desire mercy. Chapter 9, verse 27, And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed Him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, Son of David. And guess what? They cried and they received mercy. In chapter 15, verse 22, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And guess what? The woman found mercy. Jesus teaches this in chapter 12, verse 7. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Do you know why we condemn? Do you know why we are so hard on other people? Because we have not understood yet what it is like to show mercy like Jesus does. In chapter 17, verse 15, He said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. I mean, what parent out there would not come pleading to someone who they thought could help? He cries out for mercy. That's what he asks. Lord, have mercy on my son. And guess what? This is going to be a repetitive theme. He found mercy. In chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. By the way, the disciples would enter into that as well at times and try to muzzle people that were crying out for Jesus. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And guess what? You know the answer already, right? They found what? Mercy. Do you know that God's saving acts in the past are examples and encouragements of the saving acts today and in the future? Those are the themes of Micah and Matthew. Jesus is a just king who forgives sin that he might be glorified for his mercy. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 15, verse 9. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Why are we singing to that name? Why are we singing about mercy? Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Should just be a page back if you were in Matthew chapter 2. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? 
for He will save His people from their sins. You know, folks, that's what Christmas is. Christmas is about the Gospel. Christmas is about the arrival of a King who is shepherding His people, who is restoring Jerusalem, a better city, a better Jerusalem. This is hope and peace. And so if you are asking today the question that Micah ends with, who is a God like you? Let me answer that question. He is a God that pardons iniquity. He is a God that passes over transgression. He is a God who does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. He is a God who again will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot and He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. There has never been a ruler like this. His name is Jesus Christ. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Have you experienced that kind of mercy? You know what you see in Matthew's Gospel? People come into the presence of Jesus or they hear about Jesus. And when they believe He can help, what do they do? They cry out. Even when others try to muzzle them with lies, try to muzzle them with hostile, secular oppression, they cry out all the more, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. If you cry that from a humble, broken heart, admitting that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness, guess what? You will find mercy. 